This morning we continue our our way navigating through chapter 2 of Hebrews. And I think what I'm going to do here for the next couple weeks is um, I want to look at 10 to 18 as a whole because it is kind of a whole that fits together. But there's some important truth there at, uh, at the end of this section in verses 17 and 18 that I'd like to revisit and spend a little bit more time digging into, Lord willing, next week. That's my current plan. This morning, I'm going to look at 10 to 18 as a whole. So let me read that section of Scripture for us, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 to 18. Indeed, the very word of our living God. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subjected to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham." Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So ends the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word. May he write it this morning upon our hearts, and may it bear fruit in our lives. As we come before it this morning, uh, let me once again pray for us. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, now we come before your word. We ask that you would bless this time and indeed that you would speak to us. And in speaking to us, fulfill the promise that you have made about your word, that when it goes out, it does not return to you void. It does not return empty. Instead, it is successful in all the things for which you send it, and accomplishes everything that you purpose for it to accomplish. For ourselves, we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, so that our eyes might be open to see, and our ears open to hear the things that you would have us learn from your word. And in doing these things, make your word a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, so that we might walk according to those things that we learn from it. Once again, all of this we ask in the precious and wonderful name of Christ, who is our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Question for you. Who's your favorite superhero? Who's your favorite superhero? Superheroes, all the rage today. Hollywood can't seem to get enough of superheroes. They can't think of their own original stories, so they're going to the comic books for stories and inspiration. Hard to blame them. The movies are bringing in literally billions of dollars. Superheroes, all the rage. Who's your favorite superhero? 
I've been asked this question more frequently in the last couple, three years than I was asked it my whole childhood when I was reading comics. Are you a Marvel person? Are you a DC person? The rivalry between those two comic book publishers. Now, I enjoy the movies, and I do have a favorite or favorite superheroes. But the world, this is nothing new for the world. The world has always been looking for heroes. Mankind has always been searching for heroes. Today it's Batman, it's Superman, it's Iron Man, it's Thor, it's Captain America, it's whomever. But it's no different from the Middle Ages. Who do they have? Beowulf. King Arthur of legend. Robin Hood. Go back even further to the ancient Greeks. Who do they have? Odysseus. Hercules. Or Heracles as he was known to the Greeks. Superheroes. It's been part of our desire, part of the angst that we have in dealing with life in this world. Give me a superhero. Give me someone who can take, part, take care of my problems and the problems of my fellow beings. Give me a hero to save us. Give us a hero to make things right. Give us a hero to protect us from our enemies, someone who's both wise and strong, ideally. Someone who can even protect us from ourselves. And our fictional superheroes often have these kinds of qualities in varying degrees, different combinations, but they're there. If you look closely at the different superheroes, they've got these different qualities. But at the same time, we want our superheroes to have well, a little chink in their armor. We want them to be a little bit like us so that we can relate to them. To be subject in some way, shape, or form to the struggles of, of our human existence, whether they're tempted in some way, whether they have relationship troubles or financial difficulties or whatever it might be. And so Batman has a past that haunts him. His parents killed right in front of his eyes. Peter Parker has financial troubles and girl troubles galore. Superman not only has kryptonite, but he can't figure out Lois Lane. And so on and so on. We want them to have little chinks, little flaws, so that we can relate to them a little bit better. Now think about that in relation to what we just read from Hebrews 2, verses 10 to 18 which I think presents the Son, namely Jesus, presents him to us as the founder of our salvation. Or another way to put it, as the captain of our salvation, the pioneer, the author, the champion of our salvation, who defeats the devil, frees us from our fear of death, satisfies God's wrath because of our sin, but also suffers with us. Powerful, incredible passage that we are given in this letter to the Hebrews. And I want to focus on a couple things here this morning in two different categories. One is look at some of the technical, theological aspects of these verses. But then 
look at the broader picture. How is Jesus presented to us as our hero, as the champion of our salvation? He is the true, ultimate, real hero, the hero of heroes. He's king of kings, he's lord of lords. We can also think of him as hero of heroes, if you will. The true hero of the true myth. If you know what the true myth is, go back and read some C.S. Lewis and Tolkien on their idea of the gospel story being the true myth and all other myths and stories being just a reflection of that true myth. Well, if that's the true myth, the true myth needs a true hero. And Jesus is the true hero. Every other hero is just a pale reflection, ultimately, of the true hero. So let's look at the passage and what it says, and then we'll look at Jesus as hero of heroes. So Hebrews, again, as we've talked about, is an incredibly well-written letter. And I wanted to point out different features of that as we go through it from time to time. There are also in this passage some pretty profound theological points that the author just presents and just passes right right by them without really saying much about them. Uh, This is a foretaste of what we're going to hear later in the book when he calls us to leave behind the elementary things of our faith. And if you've read ahead or if you remember what those are and know the list that he presents, that's elementary. The things that this writer thinks of as elementary are to us profound study in many cases. And he's calling us to move past that So it's not surprising that profound theological ideas pepper these verses without really any comment except to provide a context for what he's writing about. So let's talk about some of those things. I always want to, one of my goals is always to help you hopefully walk away from here with a little bit better understanding of the passage than you had when you came in. So remember, chapters 1 and 2 are calling upon us to pay close attention to the message that God is speaking to us in these last days, a message that we cannot ignore, this world to come that's to be ruled by the Lord. And along the way, the author addresses a false teaching of the time that angels were superior to the Messiah in some way, and that angels, in fact, would rule the coming kingdom of God. Now in chapter 2, he's saying that the Son is the true ruler, the fulfillment of the promises of of Psalm 45, of Psalm 110, and as he quotes in this chapter, Psalm 8. We looked at Psalm 8 last week. He continues his commentary, if you will, on Psalm 8 in verses 10 to 18 by saying, it's not just true that the Son became man, became for a little while lower than the angels and is now crowned with glory and honor because of his death. It's not only that that is true, but that this is fitting. This truth is fitting. It's proper. In fact, it was necessary that the Son of God would become man so that he could save mankind. So a big theme of these verses is how Jesus identifies with us in our humanity. He identifies personally with the people he saves. 
Look at some of the language that's used here. He calls us brothers. And think of, the, think of that as in the older word that we used to use, brethren. Brothers and sisters, a family. He uses that term in verses 11, 12, and 17. We're all part of the same congregation, the people of God, the family of God. We put our trust in this divine brother and are counted as a result as children of God in verse 13. We're told that he shares the same flesh and blood with us, experiences death like us. Verses 9, 14, and 15, and does so to free us from the fear of death and the one who has the power of death, Satan. He, the physical offspring of Abraham, verse 16, helps his fellow offspring of Abraham, as we read and have studied many times, those who are offspring by faith, and even experiences temptation like us, so that he can help us when we ourselves are tempted. The Son of Man becomes man and identifies with man so that all these things can be done for us. This is fitting, appropriate, necessary, because humanity needed a human Savior, and that's what the Son is. And so verse 10 says, that makes him the founder, as it says in the ESV that I read from, the founder of our salvation. Now that's a word that every single commentary spends a lot of time talking about. I'm not going to elaborate on the Greek. I just want to say to you that that word is difficult to translate in the context of this chapter. And so people propose different solutions. Uh, Instead of founder of our faith, he's the author of our faith. Maybe your Bible has that this morning. Um, Some translations say that he's the pioneer of our faith. The one who goes before, blazes the trail for those who follow after him. Other translations use the word captain. He's the captain of our faith. He leads us as a captain, really conquering an enemy. One author proposed the word champion, and I have to say that that argument appeals to me. Um, And and he goes through an elaborate argument that I won't repeat, but basically he says that this word is also a word that would have been commonly recognized as being used about Hercules, the great Greek hero of the 12 tasks and so many other things that he's purported to have done by various authors. Hercules was known by this Greek term paired with another term, soter, which means savior. Hercules was blank and savior and seen as such in Greek mythology. And so the author or this commentator is arguing that the readers would have heard these words, thought of Hercules, and seen the application to Christ in a very profound way. He is the Hercules-like hero, the Hercules-like champion, who is also the savior of his people. That's a powerful image. Jesus, the champion of our salvation. Superior not only to angels, and as we'll see as we go through the book, priests, prophets, kings, sacrifices, everything really. And that, of course, includes pagan mythological heroes. Son of man became man. Jesus identifies with us as his brothers and sisters 
so that the work of salvation actually does save us poor human beings. The hero of heroes, the champion of our salvation. I want to come back to that idea. There's some nice little verbal parallels that are in here. Look uh, at verses 14 and 15. It doesn't come out quite neatly in, in English, but some ways in which the author uses some nice little parallels uh, to drive home some key points. Uh, in verse 14, he says that the children share in flesh and blood, and so he also shares in the same things, flesh and blood. He's drawing a direct parallel, uniting us as children with our Savior. Makes another comparison in verse 14. Through his death, he makes powerless the one who has the power of death. Another powerful statement, simple statement. Through his death, he takes away the power of the one who has the power of death. Brilliant little wordplay that he's going through. And then finally in verse 15, another nice little parallel. He delivers, he sets free those who fear death. Sets free those who fear death, who for their lives were in slavery to that fear. Freedom versus slavery. Death versus life. Powerful comparisons being made in two short verses. Brilliant writing here in this passage. And then briefly, there are some theological points that the author doesn't develop, but he just, again, just says them and passes over them rather quickly. I think he expects us to see them and get them and understand them and, and apply them as, as he goes about his argument. One thing is, as a continuation from verse 9, the end of verse 9 says that he tasted death for everyone. And, of course, some people will say, well, that means Christ died for everybody. He seems to immediately clarify that by saying that it was fitting that he did this to bring many sons to glory. So who is the everyone? The author makes it pretty clear right away. Many sons. So we have this uh, idea, if you will, of, of a very definite, a very particular group of people who are being saved. In verse 10 as well, God is presented in a very powerful and simple way. He for whom and by whom all things exist. There's a series of sermons just in that phrase. God is the one by whom all things exist. <coughs> and for whom all things exist. Look around you, there's nothing that you see anywhere of any kind. (coughs) No action, no activity, no person, (coughs) no created thing anywhere that doesn't have its source in him, but is not also for him and for his glory, for his use, for him. (coughs) God is the source of all things, and he's the purpose of all things. Now think about that. The author is implying that this is a basic thing we should be carrying with us. He just expects us to to think this way about God. Is that how you think about God day to day? The source of all things and the purpose of all things? A fundamental assumption that you carry with us? 
everything exists for God and for his purposes and for his glory. If it is, it should change your perspective completely. Not only about things and circumstances, but about people as well. Especially the lost. We are existence to God and we are made for him. The author has already warned us, and as I said, he's going to warn us again and again about paying attention to salvation. If people are made for God, then God has the right to judge them or to save them, to offer eternal salvation or punishment as a consequence for those who believe or don't. So pay attention. And that warning is going to come up again and again and again. But again, so many things we could say about this simple idea. God is the source of all things, but also the goal of all things. And then in in the section where he begins to talk about how the Son identifies with us, in verse 13, excuse me, he quotes twice from Isaiah chapter 8, again, another little passing reference, but he, he says this, Behold, I and the children God has given me. The children God has given to me. What's he saying? God the Father has given me, the Son, fellow children. (laughs) That has implications for our understanding of election, predestination, the eternal covenant that God made between Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We understand that as being the Father promising the Son a people, if the Son will go and do what the Father calls him to do for their salvation. Again, just pass over this key idea. God has given the Father a people. That should give us comfort. That should give us assurance. God chose me and gave me to the Son. God doesn't take back that which he gives. And then finally, the, the idea that I want to spend more time on next week, so just mention it this morning in verses 17 and 18, the idea that Christ was made like his brothers to become a high priest to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Just recall that the word propitiation points us to the idea that God is angry about sin and that wrath has to be satisfied. That anger has to be taken care of. And when Christ goes to the cross, he takes that anger on himself. And so the wrath of God is satisfied. Jesus appeases and satisfies the anger of God. I want to talk more about that next week. So some profound theological ideas in this little section, which really has, the, I think, the main purpose of telling us that it was appropriate for Jesus to be a man so that he could be our champion and win our salvation for us. Great artistry, precision, Theological depth, the Son of God, Jesus, is one of us, but is also the divine champion of our salvation. What does that mean? What's going on here? 
Well, the first thing I wanted us to think about is what I brought up earlier. People are desperate for heroes. People are hungry for them. It's always been true, hero stories and myths that have been part of all human cultures and and throughout human history. But to me, the appetite for a hero seems to have grown in recent years and, and, and to become, even if I, if I can put it this way, just deep-seated hunger pangs, a desperate desire for a savior, a hero, a champion of some kind. I think partly that's because heroes are in short supply for us today, partly because we're disdaining anything that has any value as a hero But look at the heroes that seem to be on the decline in our society. To how many kids growing up is daddy a hero? And how tragic is it that so few children in our time, and and it seems like more and more of them suffer this, this, this lack. Where is daddy to be a hero? I think that's tremendously sad. But authority in general is disrespected and dismissed by large, large segments of our society today. It's it's promulgated in the universities. It's in the way we teach our kids. It's the way our our entertainment portrays authority. It's the way we react to authority. Look at the way the the military is treated today. Look at the way uh, police are treated today. Look at the way uh, leaders of any kind are treated today. It doesn't matter what part of the political spectrum they're on. A hero rises up, a champion rises up, a leader rises up, and what's the first thing we do? Find faults, find weaknesses, find cracks, find ways to tear them down. How many speakers of the House have there been in the House of Representatives in the last few years? Because someone rises up, doesn't meet expectations, and people do the best they can to tear them down and put put someone else in their place. A president gets elected and almost... (laughs) One of the first things the opposition party begins to talk about now is impeachment (laughs) or wishful thoughts of assassination or other horrible and terrible things. We don't look for heroes in our culture today. We're looking for ways to tear down our traditional heroes. Founding fathers, military heroes, Politicians, scientists, engineers, business leaders, educators. It goes on and on and on. Where are the heroes today? And so what have we done? We've turned to entertainment heroes. Sports heroes, comic book heroes, actors and actresses and pop music stars. And, and, and think about it, that's a terrible substitute. Because on the one hand, comic book heroes aren't real. They're not. They're fake. Their abilities are exaggerated for storytelling purposes, beyond any reasonable expression. And the more we look to them, the more we look for similar fake and exaggerated qualities in our leaders. Take a look at the two leading presidential candidates, which, which to me are cartoon caricatures as much as anything else. Athletes, actors... Musicians become famous because of one specific skill that they have that happens to capture our attention for a little while. 
And either the attraction fades or we begin to look more closely at that person and discover, you know, they're not that great a person. Might be a great actor, but they're terrible at this. Terrible parent. Terrible at financial management. They're a drug addict or whatever it might be. So they fall rapidly from hero status. I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it with my kids. The person they admire one year is the person they despise the next year. (laughs) Why? Because that person whose songs they liked now acts like a fool and they can't stand them. But people are desperate for a hero. And here's what I want us to think about this morning. We've got what the world is looking for. We have the hero the world is looking for. And are we telling them about it? Are we inviting them to get to know that hero? Why else do we need a hero? Look at verse 15. That parallel that is drawn there. He delivers all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. There's another reason we're looking for heroes. Everybody fears death. We try to hide it. Reminded of the episode or the the scene in in The Return of the Jedi where Luke is uh, going off to confront Darth Vader and he says to Yoda, I'm not afraid. And Yoda looks at him and says, You will be. You will be. That's like us facing death. Some of us like to say, I'm not afraid of death. I'm not afraid of this, I'm not afraid of that. But the truth about it is, whether it's now, in your thoughts about the future, or when you're finally directly confronted by it, every single person fears death. We fear the process of dying, the pain, the weakness, the sickness, the sorrow. We fear the process of getting older, the pains and aches and creaks and weaknesses that develop as we get older. But we especially fear the end. I don't exist anymore. I'm not here. I'm gone. And what comes after? Anything? Is it good? Is it bad? Am I good enough to get into the good place instead of the bad place? There's a new TV show this season. The Good Place. I I can't imagine, from the previews, I can't imagine it being anything other than a stupid commentary on the afterlife. Because of it appears from the storyline that a pretty despicable person gets in the good place. And the good place is portrayed in a particularly stupid manner as well. That's an attempt to to put some painkiller on the pain of death by making it look funny or happy or silly. It's not. It's terrifying. God cursed humanity with death when our first parents sinned in the garden, and we have feared it ever since. And if people are honest with themselves, they fear death, and they fear the process of death, and they fear the consequences of death. Again, we have the answer to their fear. We have the true balm for their fear. Are you sharing that answer? 
are people hearing that from us. We know someone who conquered death. You got your favorite superhero. That superhero never conquered death. Your favorite actor, your favorite politician, your favorite hero from history, that hero never conquered death. Mine did. Join my team. Or more properly, join his team. Because death is coming. The death, the penalty for our sin, the the reality of the enemy who's been given the power of death, the devil exists. Now think about this. The devil has the power of death. And to make matters... Let me back up a little bit. Think of this as teams. There's two teams. There's the death team and there's the life team. And the death team is led by the enemy of of us, the devil. He's got the power of death. But what other team is there to join? Because the judge of death is against us, and we're against him. We're in rebellion against him. We're stuck on this team that is doomed to failure. And we have no hope. Things are upside down. Things are backwards. It's a, it's a bizarro world, to borrow from the Superman comics. And our enemy, the devil, is our ally in rebellion against God. Our enemy is also our ally. And our Creator, who made us in love, for whom and by whom we were made, as the passage says, who is powerful enough to save us, is the one we hate. The one we rise up in rebellion against. And as a result, He must judge us and punish us for that rebellion and give it the punishment it deserves, which is death. So here we are. We're on the wrong team with the wrong ally and the one who can save us is the one we despise. (laughs) What do we do? Who can save us? Who can rescue us? We need a hero. How do we fix this backwards, upside down existence? And this is where the solution presented here in these verses is so incredible and so appropriate. It is fitting that salvation would come this way. That's the argument the author is making. It's appropriate that salvation would come this way. And how does it come? God becomes a human being. Now, he doesn't join our team. That's a tempting way to put the the metaphor, the illustration. He doesn't join our team. He starts a new team. He starts a new team. He's the founder of that team, the captain of that team, to use a couple of the ways to look at that word in verse 10. And he calls those whom God has given him to be on his team, to come join that team with him. We're afraid to join the team because we're afraid of what our slave owner will do to us. We're afraid of death, and we're enslaved to death, and so we're unable to join Team Jesus. In PE or, or gym or playing out in the streets with your friends, did you ever, was there ever a time when you're, you're picking sides for some game? It could be hide-and-seek, it could be a sport, who knows what it is. 
and there's two captains. And there's the one kid you know, if you're on his team, you win. <laughs> and you're just hoping, please pick me, please pick me, please pick me. I want to win. This is kind of how we are. What does our champion do to, to free us, to release us from enslavement to death? And the author tells us this in this passage, in this chapter. What does our champion do? He dies. Our champion dies. He takes care of God's wrath for our sin. He experiences the very thing that causes us the most fear and that which enslaves our whole existence. But our founder and captain and champion does not stay dead because on the third day he rose from death to life and lives forever, the first fruits of those who by grace and through faith in him rise from death to live forever as well. Where? Floating on clouds, wearing white robes with wings strumming on harps? Ew. In the world to come, which the writer has been writing about. The world to come of which we have been speaking. This brings us back to the central idea of these two chapters. Pay attention. Pay attention to this word being spoken by God through his Son. And don't neglect the great salvation that he offers. The consequences are monumental and the consequences are eternal. It's death or it's life. Choose life. As we sang last week, hear the call of Christ our captain. Admit your sin, ask for forgiveness, and trust in the one who took care of sin. He's calling. Join his team and let him be your champion and live. Let me pray for us. God, our Father, by whom and for whom all things were made, we do come before you now with great gratitude and joy in our hearts for the work that you have done for us in Christ, our Savior. Enslaved in sin and in the power of death, you broke that enslavement by sending your Son to die for us, but to rise again to life. Now we have hope. Now we have joy. Now we have freedom. Christ has set us free. What a glorious truth that is. May we live like it. May we talk like it. May we show that truth to others around us. May they see it in us and may they crave it just as surely as they crave a hero, as they crave some sort of salvation, some sort of deliverance. Don't let us forget that we have the answers. We have what the world is looking for because you have given to it in Christ, our Lord and Savior. We thank you for that. Give you all the, pla- all the praise and all the glory and all the honor here this morning remembering the- these things, lifting them up before you in Christ's precious, holy, wonderful, and superior name. Amen.